Well, good morning, everyone. You all ready for Thanksgiving? Anyone smell turkey when you came in the building? It's seeping into our walls. I'm not sure we're ever going to get it out. I think we've cooked uh, upwards of 40 or 50 turkeys. And uh, this week, it's really hard to be in the office with the turkey smell. And uh, at one point, I was in here, and I, and I, I went into the kitchen, and uh, one of our folks was in there. They brought out two turkeys, and they were moving the turkey from the little pan that it was in, and there was some meat stuck to the bottom, and I just want to serve. And so I, I took some, I tasted it. Oh, man, I had to sit down for a few minutes. This is really good stuff. So we're going to be serving several hundred people come Thursday, and I appreciate all that you've done to make that possible. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me if you have them to Exodus 20. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one you can use in one of the chairs around you. Today, uh, we conclude our series uh, entitled It Starts With Ten, 10, in which we've been looking at the Ten Commandments. And um, one of the things that we've learned from the start, and we've mentioned it over and over again, is how God gave these commandments to the Israelites after they left Egypt. In other words, the people were rescued by the grace and the power of God, not by keeping these directives. These were given to the Israelites because freedom was a whole new experience for the people. You know, after centuries of slavery, they had found themselves out on their own, suddenly wondering how to survive as a nation, how to live in safe, sustainable community. And so God gives these uh, to help the people understand how healthy human life and relationships and community is supposed to work, how it's meant to be, how uh, it's all supposed to be. And if you've missed any of these ten Uh, I encourage you to go back online and listen. You might be surprised because sometimes it might not exactly be what you thought. So if you missed them, go ahead. You'll find those on our website. Uh, This is week 11. There are only 10 commandments. So I'm not making one up. I just want to to offer some closing thoughts on all of it uh, for you. So uh, first things first, let's review exactly what God said to his people. Okay, He said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath, the rest day, by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Now, after, uh, after weeks of study and careful analysis, here's my question. Do you perceive these directives to be important or at all relevant to you, to your family, uh, to all of us, to our community, to our culture, to our world? And if so, why? And it's something that we should think about because although studies show that about 80% of Americans affirm the Ten Commandments, not everyone believes they're overtly uh, or overly critical. A uh, part of the reason for that, uh, I think, is because people in our culture don't respond particularly well to commands in general. We don't like to be told what to do. As Americans, we we place a very high value on self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and personal independence. And so, while transcendent values may be intellectually affirmed and revered, uh, revered by many, rampant individualism. Uh, overshadows the prospect of actually adhering to any set of absolute moral standards. In other words, today in America, most men and women view the Ten Commandments um, more as suggestions, uh, good suggestions, but suggestions. They're nice in theory, but not always realistic. Uh, they're plausible, but not necessarily practical. At the same time, there are others who just out and out reject them, Uh, in order to promote their own take on morality, their own ideas of right and wrong. 
And see, here's the thing. Uh, societies don't exist in a moral vacuum. Somebody's worldview and accompanying uh, moral value system has to prevail. And today in America, there are differing worldviews vying for preeminence. And for the sake of time, I've lumped them into three basic categories. First, there's the naturalistic worldview uh, that approaches uh, morality and ethics and the question of right and wrong with some very specific presuppositions. Namely, our physical material universe is all that it exists. It's all there is. There's, there's no God or anything like that. There's just man and his environment, both uh, the chance product of biological process and natural evolution, survival of the species. Uh, there's no transcendent meaning to our existence because we're just accidents, and therefore there's no transcendent basis for moral absolutes. A science and reason must dictate. And um, obviously, this is, this is the view of atheism. And uh, as outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins has put it in his book, River Out of Eden, the universe and humanity, it's all just the result of random natural process and has, according to Dawkins, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But with 92% of Americans believing in God, uh, Dawkins' view is not a very popular one. In fact, last, uh, last month's National Atheist Convention, scheduled for October 5th in Boston, had to be canceled due to a lack of funding, which to me translates into a lack of interest and cultural relevance. Uh, there's also the moralistic worldview which presupposes uh, that not only there's not only a physical material universe, but a potentially spiritual one, or at the very least, an undefined realm of existence. Uh, there's not necessarily one creator, but perhaps many gods. And so there are no true moral absolutes. Whatever is right or wrong is, is relative to your, your experience, to your belief. Uh, Dr. Chris Smith as a professor of sociology at Notre Dame University, and in his book entitled Soul Searching, suggests, based on studies, that most Americans and, and most younger Americans hold to what he calls a moralistic, therapeutic deism. And uh, that's the belief that God may be real, he may be out there somewhere, but he's not particularly involved in our lives, he doesn't really have to be, uh, except when he's needed to solve a problem. Then if you're good, God will be good to you because that's his job. That's his responsibility. And if you're a really good moral person, you get to go to heaven. But still, the issue remains who decides what is good. Well-known Harvard uh, law professor Alan Dershowitz considers himself a Jewish agnostic. And he's written a lot on the topic of ethics and morality and, in, for example, in his book entitled Rights from Wrongs, explores the question of where, where, are, where are ideas of morality and, and human rights, where do they come from? And uh, Dershowitz offers a few possibilities. First, he says it's possible they do come from a creator who has, who has given uh, to us these moral absolutes although Dershowitz is not particularly convinced of that. He says another possibility is you know, through nature. We get our morals through nature, through natural law. However, he points out that nature thrives on violence and predation, survival of the fittest. And so there's no way to derive a concept of morality or the dignity of every individual from the way things work in nature. There's not a, there's not a right survival or a wrong survival. There's just survival. A third possibility, he says, is that human beings, that we, we create our own morality by way of the majority. 
You know, the majority decides what is right uh, and what is best in order for all of us to thrive. But consider the implications of that. For example, the Sudanese government has committed or at, at the very least allowed genocide to take place in the Darfur region of their country. And so apparently uh, the majority of Sudanese, or at least Sudanese leaders, believe that it's good to decrease human flourishing among millions and millions of people, their own people. In other words, just let them die. Many of us would look at that and say, well, that's, that's wrong, that's immoral. But who gets to arbitrate between the Sudanese opinion and, and, and ours? Unless there's an objective moral standard that transcends opinions then there can only be opinions. And the majority, with power, uh, then get to dictate their opinion, their morality, with those without power acquiescing. And so Dershowitz says, no, that doesn't work. Morality by majority is inadequate. And so what is his conclusion? His conclusion is that morality and human rights cannot be created by human beings. He says it must come from something beyond utility, beyond us which I don't know, to me sounds like God, but Dershowitz sees it a little differently. That brings us to uh, the third worldview, which is the Judeo-Christian worldview, which presupposes one creator who knows what is right and good and best for the world that he designed. Uh, there, there is both a physical and a spiritual universe. Man is a created being designed uh, in the, the image of this, this God, uh, with a material and immaterial nature, with rational capabilities and a moral conscience. Moral absolutes exist and have been revealed by this creator, and we have been given the ability to either obey them or disobey the directives. To obey them leads to, um, to safe, healthy, productive community. Uh, to disobey leads to the opposite. I don't know if you heard about this, but last, uh, this past Wednesday, all the newly elected members to the U.S. Congress, 70, I think 70 men and women in total, were required to sit through a crash course on morality and ethics. And when I heard that, I thought, well, that's a good idea. You know, that's a, that's a good idea. But I wondered, who's teaching that class? Uh, and and who, who is it that's instructing our leaders on morality? And from what worldview do they operate? And I don't know the answer to that. But I do know this. No society exists in a moral vacuum. When one set of values or standards is removed, you can be sure that uh, a new set will be promoted and fall into place very, very quickly. In any culture, any society, somebody's moral value system has to prevail. And if America isn't going to be governed out of a Judeo-Christian ethic, let's not be naive. It will be ruled by something else. And with all due respect, the first two worldviews hold to no transcendent moral absolutes, which makes it impossible to construct and maintain a consistent ethical decision-making process. Everything just becomes relative and subjective, uh, subjectively based on man's reason or experience alone. And the end result of that, at best, is moral confusion and, at worst, total chaos. It's only within a Christian, Judeo-Christian framework that you find not just somebody's opinion, but a consistent, objective, flawless, moral value system that transcends the centuries, transcends cultures. And the foundation of that rests with these Ten Commandments. Which brings us back to the original question. Do you perceive them as important and relevant to you? to your family, to all of us, to our community, to our culture, to our world.
Now, I assume, I'm going to assume that most of us in this room do believe that. But why? Uh, and if you've never really thought through it, although I've given you a few hints here, let, let, me, offer, uh, let me offer some suggestions. First of all, these Ten Commandments are important and relevant because they reveal the holiness of God. Now, back when we started this series, one of the things we noted was how uh, before issuing these commandments, God asserted his authority to do so. Right? You remember in verse 2, he said to the people, I am the Lord your God. In Scripture, whenever the English word uh, Lord is found in capital letters, it always represents God's proper name, Yahweh, given to Moses back in Exodus chapter 2. It's the Hebrew verb to be. It can be translated, um, basically, I am who I am, or I be who I be, being, uh, being itself, being um, uh, any, any number of ways it can be translated. But basically, the name emphasizes God's divine nature. How he is the eternal source of all things. Everything we see and experience, he's the source of it. The Hebrew term for God that's used at the end of the verse carries the idea of power and the idea of mightiness. So here's my, here's my Reiki translation of that. God says to the people, I am the self-existing I am. Being itself, the source of all things, the mighty one. There are no other beings, real or imagined, who rival me. I am your God. Once that's established, God then goes on to lay out these ten directives, which, which are not just rules, but are in and of themselves revelation about the nature of God, who alone is worthy of worship and honor. He is right, he is just, he is, he is true, he is faithful, he is pure, he is gracious, he is loving, he is giving. And all these divine characteristics are expressed in and through these commandments. So in short, the commands reveal God's holiness. Holy means to be uniquely set apart from everything else. So God is set apart from his creation. He is set apart from his creatures. He is the creator. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. And so when he speaks, uh, we would all do well to listen. In fact, in verse 18 of chapter 20, uh, we find out that when the people saw the lightning uh, on the mountain and they heard the thunder and they noticed the smoke up on the mountain where Moses was, they admitted they were a little afraid of God. They were a little freaked out. And they said to Moses, hey, Moses, you just tell us what God has to say and we'll be cool with that. But Moses says, look, you don't have to be afraid of God, but you do need to revere him and honor him and respect him and obey him because he is holy. He is set apart, and he wants you to be holy too. So the first reason the commandments are important is because they reveal the holiness of God. The second reason is because they inform us how to live well. Understand, Exodus 20 is not, it does not represent the random dictates of a capricious deity. These were the wise words of God, the Creator, who fashioned human beings, you and me, in his own likeness. And therefore, he, is, he knows what is right and what is best and what is good and what is healthy and what is safe for us. And so while it's true these commandments were given to the Israelites, they are not limited to the Israelites. As broken, imperfect, sinful people trying to get along in this world today, I don't know, these, they just, these commandments make sense when you think through them. This is where healthy human life and relationships and family and community starts. And on some level... On some level, we all know that, that that's true. How many parents want their kids to grow up to be thankless, greedy liars? 
What single person hopes today a violent thief? What spouse expects their husband or wife to cheat on them? Who thinks that, that hate and violence is acceptable? Who thinks murder is okay? And who doesn't want a day uh, once a week to rest from the rigors of life and work? Think about it. Contentment, honesty, love, faithfulness, generosity, rest, honor, respect, valuing human life, all the positive qualities reflected in these commandments are those we long to see in ourselves, in our family, uh, in our families, in our, among our friends, in our society. I mentioned a couple weeks ago how I just finished reading uh, atheist uh, Sam Harris's new book. Sam's a well-known atheist. Uh, the book on lying, that's the, the title of it. And it's a good book. Um, I enjoyed reading it. And in the book, Sam Harris asserts, to lie is to intentionally mislead others when they expect honest communication. He says, lying is the royal road to chaos, relational chaos, cultural chaos. And he says, lying is wrong. And I agree with him. But on what basis does Sam Harris make such an absolute moral pronouncement? It seems to me the best he could do is to say lying is risky. It's risky to your relationships. It's risky to life and community. Why do I say that? Because as an atheist, Harris contends that life and existence has no intrinsic meaning. We're all just accidental results of biological evolution. There's no God. There's no divine lawgiver. There's no transcendent truth. And if that's the case, then Harris's own ideas of goodness, justice, and morality are just that, his ideas. There's, they're completely subjective. Yet it's amazing how atheists like him uh, express a very high level of moral indignation. Given the premises of their own worldview, atheists have no basis for that indignation. If everything is an accident without meaning or purpose, love is just a chemical reaction. Uh, um, thoughts about good and bad, right and wrong, are just the firing of, of neurons uh, in our brains. And if that's so, then who's to say what's right and wrong? Yet ironically, the majority of atheists surreptitiously borrow many of the moral standards of Christianity while at the same time assailing the faith. Last week I mentioned Joy Davidman to you. Joy was a brilliant thinker. She was an atheist turned Christian. She was also the wife of C.S. Lewis. And she wrote a book entitled Smoke on the Mountain, an Interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And uh, in that book, uh, under the idea of morality, she writes this. She says, she says, the essential amorality of all atheist doctrines is often hidden from us by an irrelevant personal argument. We see that many articulate secularists are well-meaning and law-abiding men. We see them go into righteous indignation over injustice and often devote their lives to good works. And so we conclude that he can't be wrong whose life is in the right, that their philosophies are just as good guides to action as Christianity. What we don't see is that they are not acting on their philosophies. They are acting out of habit or sentiment on an inherited Christian ethic, which they still take for granted, though they have rejected the creed from which it sprang. She's right. She's not the only one who says that. In an article entitled Secularism's Ongoing Debt to Christianity, uh, atheist author and thinker John Steinrucken says this. He put it this way. He says, Although I'm a secularist, atheist, if you will, 
I accept that the great majority of people would be morally lost without religion. Can anyone seriously argue that crime and debauchery are not held in check by religion? Would such be likely if Christianity were not there to provide a moral compass to the great majority? Do we secularists not benefit from a morally responsible society? Those who doubt the effect of religion on morality should seriously ask the question, just what are the immutable moral laws of secularism? Be prepared to answer, if you're honest, that such laws simply do not exist. The best answer we can ever hear from atheists is a hodgepodge of strained relativist talk of situational ethics. We can cite no overriding authority other than fashion. For the great majority in the West, it is the Judeo-Christian tradition which offers a template assuring a life of inner peace which translates into a workable, liberal society. Here's my Reiki summary of that. He's saying that without firm moral absolutes like those provided by Judeo-Christian framework, culture, life itself eventually erodes into anarchy, into chaos, as Sam Harris would put it. Or as famed Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. You see, these Ten Commandments provide the objective foundation for morality, personal and societal. And even a fairly general practice of them would go an awful long way to solving almost every problem of meaning and order facing Western culture. Crime, violence, immorality, hate, greed, the decline of the family, all dealt with. Understand, it's, it's through these divine directives God informs us on right and wrong and how to lead good, safe, healthy, product, productive lives. But they also expose the nature of our humanity and our deep-seated inclination to rebel against what we know is right. Years ago, Polish filmmaker Krzysztof Kuszlowski wrote and directed a 10-hour film series called The Decalogue, meaning The Ten Laws. Uh, and uh, he, he won a, a number of international awards for the film. When talking about the series, being interviewed about it, and at, specifically addressing the Ten Commandments themselves, Kishlovsky said this. He said, For 6,000 years, these rules have been unquestionably right, yet we break them every day. We know what we should do, and yet we fail to live as we should. People feel there's something wrong in life. His assessment is correct. It's spot on. There is something wrong in life. And we sense it. We know it. The world is a broken place with broken people like me who have a sense of what we should do, have a sense of who we want to be uh, and how we should live, but we don't, we don't do it. Instead, idolatry and, and lying and cheating and envy and immorality and disloyalty and stealing and hate and murder are all hurtful, destructive things we do. Now, let's face it, we're human. And at some point or another, we're all guilty of violating some of these God-given commandments and not adequately honoring the others. We sin. In the New Testament, James writes to the church, he calls us lawbreakers. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He says, Forever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he says, for he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Let's take that thought a bit further. If I honor my parents, but I steal something from someone, I'm a lawbreaker. 
if I never have a covetous thought in my brain, but have lied and intentionally deceived someone, I'm a lawbreaker. If I'm outwardly religious, but don't really love God and worship him as he deserves, I'm a lawbreaker. If I call myself a Christian, yet at times ignore God or through certain behaviors tarnish his reputation, I'm a lawbreaker. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's reality. Well, think of it this way. Every morning when I get up, I, I go in our bathroom. And our, ba- in our bathroom, over the sink is a big mirror, this big mirror. And so each morning I am subjected to a harsh dose of reality. Uh, because I, I stand in front of that mirror, and that mirror reflects every, every pound, every blemish, every wrinkle, every hairless inch of my noggin. You know, And there's no denying it. The, 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 the mirror exposes every physically uh, imperfect thing about me, and there are a lot of things. And so, and so I've considered never going back into that bathroom again. <laughs> But, you know, that's not an option. I thought about keeping the light off when I'm in there. Uh, that's impractical. And I've, I've considered getting rid of the mirror altogether. But, but that won't change reality. I'll just be living in denial. And so every morning, I have to go in there and face the truth about who I am and what I look like. Am I thrilled about doing that? No. Would you be if you were me? Probably not. Because mirrors don't lie. They don't lie. And the commandments of God, the law of God, is like a, like a big mirror. Like it or not, it tells us the truth. It reflects not, not who we want to be, but who we actually are. It shows all of our imperfections. It exposes our rebelliousness, our failures, our sins. And you know what? You can choose not to look at it. Or try to ignore it if you want. Try to get rid of it. But that won't change reality. It's, you're just denying the truth. Uh, In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to the church, he says, listen, whatever God's law says, it says it for a reason. It says it so that, he says, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in, in God's sight by observing the law because no one can observe it perfectly. He says, rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, our sin. Here's my Reiki translation. God's law shuts our mouths and it leaves us with no excuses. The commandments expose our sinful human nature and how we're all guilty of violating God's perfect moral standards. And so that brings us to the final, final reason the commands are important. And that's because they reveal our need of forgiveness, our need of a rescuer, our need of God's grace. Put another way, they lead us to Jesus. And just so you know, that's not, those aren't my words. That's exactly how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. I mean, listen to me. No human being, no human being can perfectly keep God's commandments. You can't do it. It's impossible. I can't do it. You can't do it. The Apostle Paul couldn't do it. He admits it to the church at one point. He, he writes and says, look, I agree the law is good. He says, but I, I, know, I know good itself doesn't dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I, des- I have the desire to do what's right, but I can't carry it out. For I do not, the, I do, not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. He goes, I'm a wretched man. I'm a twisted individual. I'm messed up. I'm broken. He said, who will rescue me from death? Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
we are all commandment violators. We are all divine lawbreakers who are responsible for our attitudes and our actions. And unless we receive a pardon, we're going to have to face the consequences of our rebellion. And those consequences come now in this life because there are consequences to lying and cheating and stealing. There are consequences. You'll pay the consequences. But there are also consequences to come. The Apostle Paul says that ultimately the penalty is death. Eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. Forgiveness. Paul writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, save you, God did by, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The Apostle Peter, he put it this way, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The Apostle John, he wrote this way, says to the church, Look, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we just confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. For Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me tell you something. If you've been around the last few weeks listening to this series, and as we, you know, we've gone through each commandment, one after another, and at, at points along the way, it's been really hard for you, it's been frustrating, it's been discouraging, it's been humbling, it's been convicting for you, be grateful. Because the law has then succeeded in doing the primary thing God intended it to do, to show you and to show me our need for God's grace, our need of forgiveness, our need of a rescuer. You know, every religion has established and set down an ethical moral code of conduct uh, similar to what we, we read here in Exodus 20. And all of those religions uh, teach that if you're good enough, if you obey the code, if you keep the rules, you can work your way to paradise, to heaven, to nirvana, to nirvana whatever. You know, basically, you can earn your rescue. And a lot of people mistakenly think the same thing when it comes to these Ten Commandments. They think, if I can just be good enough, if I can keep these, these rules, if I can keep all of them, God will save me. But here's the deal. These commandments were given to an already rescued people. The Israelites were not set free by keeping the laws. They didn't, they didn't earn their way out of bondage by adhering to them. No, these men and women were rescued and redeemed by the grace of God. It's always the grace of God that saves. Not adherence to rules and regulations that sinful human beings like me and you cannot possibly keep. These commandments cannot rescue us. They can only prove our need to be rescued. Now, you may think differently, but for me, the commandments are not irrelevant. They are not obsolete. They're not outdated. On the contrary, they make sense to me. I look around at our world. I think they're exactly what we all need individually, culturally, globally. They reveal the holiness of the God who created us. And they inform us on what is right and on what is good and how to live life healthy and well. Uh, without, without them, there's chaos. We need them because they expose the truth of our own brokenness and our sinful nature. We need them because ultimately they lead us to the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, 
who came to live the perfect life we couldn't live and die the death we deserve to die and graciously rescue us and give us life and freedom forever. Let's pray. So Lord, as we, uh, as we hear the news this weekend, as we read about world events, uh, how can we not see the brokenness of it all? We look to the Middle East and we see the violence and the hate, um, the killing. We look around our culture and we see corruption, and, um, injustice, crime. We look at our own lives and we recognize our own brokenness and our tendencies toward deception and envy and all these things. Um, Lord, um, we, we recognize, or at least hope and pray that we recognize that your word to us represents what is right and what is good and how life was intended to be, how it's meant to be. And yet, here we are, broken people in a broken place. And we are desperately in need of your grace. Help us to understand, perhaps for the first time, maybe in a deeper way, that your commandments tell us how we should live, but also expose our inability to do it. And, um, and they, point us, they point us to the rescuer, Jesus, who we all need. For we all are guilty of being lawbreakers. And therefore we all need forgiveness. We need your grace in our lives. We need Messiah Jesus. And so we, uh, we're thankful for what he's done for us. And we worship. We worship him now. In his name we pray. Amen.